how's your sleep level right now? It's I have, I have a I was telling Jeff I have a great scenario that I'm going to give you if you ask okay. me about the first days of fatherhood I have the best example and it's food related and I'm going to but I'm saving my best stuff for the air. Well here we go. This is the, that's the voice of Steve Bermucci our guest this week. the <laughs> <laughs> managing editors over at Up Rocks, great author, published author. Uh Jeff is back in the studio as well. Yeah. Ye. What's up? Which is basically our conference room with uh, three mics in it. But uh, welcome to the catch up. We got a real good episode for you this week. Um, I want to give a quick shout out to Michelle Nakamoto, uh, one of our listeners of last week. Thank you so much for sharing the podcast. Uh, what's your What's your Twitter? What's your Twitter? Your Twitter is Nakamobro. So uh, follow her, tweet her. Thank you for listening, and I'll shout out the next person next week. Roll the intro music, Bray. Welcome, Steve. Welcome, <laughs> Thank Steve. you guys so much for having me. This is like, I love hanging and talking about food with you guys. This is the third time, right? This is the third time, man. These episodes are always the best when you're, when you're here. But you're a little late today, dude. Everything has changed now. <laughs> <laughs> the world has shifted. Um, four days ago, I had a son. So I'm a father now. I, as yeah. a, I'm not even a one week. I have not kept him alive for one week. <laughs> I have not succeeded. Every morning I wake up, I was like, he's still alive. I've done it. <laughs> But, and I, I hate, can we curse on this show? Yeah, you can curse, yeah. man. You can curse. I hate when, you know, like new parents are so obnoxious and they're like, you don't, like, you don't know about anything because you don't have a kid. <laughs> I think that's bullshit. But my dad still says that shit. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like your dad says like, oh, you don't know about managing a household. You don't have a son. And I'm like, all right, I'll get one. <laughs> now I have one. But here is the thing that I will say. One of the greatest we're we're on a food podcast. One of the greatest food scenes of all time is uh, the last scene in Goodfellas, where he's making the pasta sauce, Ooh. and he then he runs. You guys know the scene I'm talking about. Then he yeah. runs and he has to go do an errand. He has to like drop off guns. And then he has to go give coke to a babysitter. <laughs> yeah. and he's and he's always coming back. He's he's way coked out, and he's always coming back and stirring the pot, the the sauce. Do you guys know that scene? Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely. all right. I will say this. It's been five days of having a life that depends on me to live. And he is he is like every role in that except Ray Liotta. I'm Ray Liotta. <laughs> he is the pasta sauce. <laughs> he is the fucking FBI floating above. And I am the one constantly rushing like, I got to get the food piece. I got to get home. I got to get the sauce stirred. And he's the sauce. And then, but but everyone's watching. And he's the one watching. And I just like... Shit's wild. <laughs> That's Shit's the wild. cold intro. That is relating your kid to a pasta sauce. Yeah, my kid is a pasta sauce that might burn. He is that. And, keep scraping the and sides he, of your kid. He'll exactly, be all right. Exactly. And I'm just trying to keep him on simmer long enough before the FBI swoops in and arrests me and I spend the rest of my life in witness protection. That I'm the, I'm the last scene in Goodfellas. That's what it is. Welcome to parenthood. Well, Eli also mentioned that uh, you were a little tardy to pick up something related to food and sustenance because it was a breast pump. Was or did you? Yeah, make wait, that I don't know. I heard. And I was like, I was like, what a food beast reason to be <laughs> yeah. late for the sustenance of your own that's kid. True. That's right. That's true, and that's the point. Is so he's having a hard time um, 
getting all the milk he needs. So we're using this little like jerry-rigged syringe system and the syringe broke and I went to like four CVSs <laughs> and I, I like called you guys in between. And it was that scene. I was like, guys, I'm gonna be late. I need a new syringe. I went into an urgent care and they were like, are you a member to this place? It was like one of those Zoom medical places. And I was like, no, anyone but I need a syringe. Hey, let me tell you, side note, <laughs> they turns out that when you walk in like way overexcited <laughs> with your eyes bloodshot and you say like, hey guys, I need a syringe. <laughs> Zoom Medical Care doesn't have a lot of patience for your shit. They assume that you're there for the wrong reasons and they're like, you need to leave this premises <laughs> or pay us money to do something. But yeah, so I was an unsuccessful afternoon that led to this hopefully successful podcast. So far, so bad, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Good listeners so right we're now are tuning in. definitely out. not talking about breast pumps today. <laughs> yeah, how do we segue into uh, cultural appropriation and what we're about to talk about? But, okay, so this is a kind of, there's a lot, there's a lot that we have to unpack for this particular episode. But how it got started is um, this gal by the name of Jennifer Neoskoda. I'm going to butcher your last name. I apologize. You butchered a culture. Um, <laughs> oh, wow. Sorry. Spoiler alert. Can you just Ouch. give them the recap you before you, you go the into I am so sentence? sorry. My bad. My bad. My bad. We're going to we're gonna treat this with some respect. My bad. So uh, Jenny uh, went and created a Kickstarter because she wanted – she was inspired by a trip to Mexico uh, and she wanted to open up her own frutaria in a city in San Diego. Um, part of this Kickstarter is a very um, tone deaf, very tone deaf, very tone deaf Kickstarter video where she looks like she hired a good crew to do it, and it looks good, but it's just her walking, kind of white splaining what a fruteria is to folks um, with and a it, very specific non-Latino accent. Yeah, I she, can say she's yeah she's very white, very blonde. All great things, except when you're trying to explain a different culture that's not yours. Um, and anyway, she, she uses quotes like she's talking about basically like fixing and saving the most vibrant up-and-coming neighborhood of San Diego, which as a lot of great literature has come about, about you know the spotlight on this area in San Diego, uh, may not be the case. There's a lot of work to be done, and there's a lot of culture there that's already present. And uh, she... Potentially didn't go about it in the right way. Yeah, and we should talk about a few different moments of this video because that's a good general bird's eye view of what this video was. Yeah. But then there were specific moments where, again, for people who haven't watched the video, the video was actually taken down. She took it 72 down. 72 hours after it was initially released. We, our editorial... Because of you guys. Yeah, yeah. Of us, the, our editorial team jumped on it, so we still had the video footage from, uh, from the internet. But I mean, there's moments where she alludes to, I'm being inspired by Mexico, and on screen is a picture of her and all of her Caucasian friends sipping Coronas on a beach, which is Mexico, but it's also a, a pretty- resort in Mexico. It's a resort, touristy version of Mexico. She calls it an upcoming neighborhood, which the neighborhood is Barrio Logan, which at least in 2010 was over 70% Hispanic. So by calling it an upcoming neighborhood is basically gentrification speak <laughs> for this is, wasn't a good neighborhood and look now I'm trying to revive it. 
Um, she calls. She said that she was cre- she was creating an urban sanctuary, which in the <sighs> same way is saying that the rest of this neighborhood is bad, but my fruteria will be great. So those are just just for for our listeners. That's a few different moments that I think speak to the tone of that. And then video. she asked for $35,000. She she, she she talked about being a travel Instagrammer and that's like her clout to be able to start this restaurant or start this fruteria and she's traveling for six years out of her life and then comes back and asks us for $35,000 for her Kickstarter. Race aside, she's, that's like the laziest entrepreneurial shit I've ever seen in my life. Like, <laughs> like, Which is a completely different topic. That we topic. Can think, right. we, we can will, totally do another but podcast, we could do a podcast on the lazy entrepreneurship. For We're sure. going to talk about that later. <laughs> let's just, get like, the race thing just like up. what exactly Kickstarter is and how people get paid back for like, yo, I kickstarted this awesome fruteria. What do you get from that? I, I, the ability to come to this party and say I kickstarted this awesome fruteria like that's uh, I'm confused about end games of Kickstarter but I know that's ancillary to what we're talking about well and to your point Steve here's some of the listings of the Kickstarter if you supported this because oh, yeah, this is pretty this is pretty hilarious for twenty five dollars you get a smoothie and a sticker. Which, my first was like, okay, $25 smoothies a sticker. I realize that you're trying to have some sort of margin to build your brand. I wasn't too mad. But the problem that I had was as the increased uh, donation, as the donations went up, it got worse. Okay, so that's the, that's the stage, right? That's $20, $25, you get a smoothie and a sticker. For $75, you get a plant-based protein bar and a tote bag. I was like, well, did, did it get worse? Did, yeah, the prices so got worse. <laughs> you don't <laughs> <still> get the <laughs> smoothie. Yeah. Can I still get the smoothie? And then on top of that, for one seventy-five, for one hundred and seventy-five dollars, you got two coconut bowls. In parentheses, said no smoothie. <laughs> And a T-shirt and a sticker. Oh, that's mad penny pinching. I didn't even realize how. Uh, so like, my my whole thing Kickstarter. was like, I already know I'm not getting the smoothie. You had to put it in parentheses <laughs> right, that I'm not right, getting the smoothie. <laughs> yeah, you're just jamming it Sorry, in. Sorry, buddy. What are your margins? You can't give away another smoothie to the donor at 175 can't bucks. Do it. My 170 level donor is not getting the smoothie. So not only was this video tone deaf, I just generally disagreed with all of the donation <laughs> levels on top of that. Well, I, that is actually sorry to, to hop in, but I mean, that is a great question about appropriation when we talk about it. Is this idea of like, okay, is this appropriation? Or is this person just a little bit of like a, you know, like just an uh, idiot, for lack of a better <laughs> word? And I'm not, I'm not necessarily calling her idi- an idiot. Just simply saying that, like, you know, tone deaf and real appropriation are probably different. I think from seeing the video, she probably did a little bit of both. <laughs> um, and so it's like tricky to mix and match. And say like, where are you really like doing something where a culture has like a deep-seated complaint and says like that we feel like this is a little offensive culturally, versus where are you just being like an Instagram person who is being way overzealous and kind of flippant, you know? And I think, like I say, I think she was both of those things. I think sometimes we've seen cases blow up in the news where I didn't necessarily feel like it was appropriation. I felt it like it was someone being a little too flippant and I you know and then we've seen the opposite true where it's like 
wow, this person is doing something that really feels like like there are some some deep-seated race-based things happening and they're almost getting a pass. You know, I, I think we've seen all three of those little scenarios in that Venn diagram. I think it, it, it'd be weird not to talk about Kook's burrito incident. Yes. Like, because yeah. you've, you've written extensively about Kook's burritos, right? Like We wrote a lot about it. Yeah, I, I wrote about it quite a bit. I had a team of writers. I, I'm a white male heterosexual, and so I didn't want to just have that viewpoint. I had a team of writers, a Native American writer, an African American writer, uh, you know, female, um, take on different bits of that. So the story with Kook's burrito was actually strikingly similar. Mm -hmm. It was a white woman who had gone down to two white women who had gone down to Mexico on a surf trip and they go down to Puerto Nuevo, which maybe we're in Southern California. Maybe you all know. I, it's certainly a place I spend a lot of time. I go there about literally four times a year. Um, and so they went down to Puerto Nuevo. They went to the Mexican restaurants down there. They saw the women making tortillas. And they said, wow, like the way that they make tortillas is really cool. Then they came back up to Portland, Oregon, and they were like, we're going to make a burrito, a, a burrito spot where we make tortillas. So far, like so good. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then they did an interview with a, with a Portland Weekly, and they, they just came off a little flippant. So, so part of this is like just young people having a creation story, right? These two young women were 24 years old. And their story was like, and then we would peek at the Mexican women making the, the tortillas, and we'd say, we wanted to make tortillas. Well, I've spent a lot of time in Puerto Nuevo. They put the women in front of giant place, plate glass windows. So these women were not like stacking buckets and like, you know, brushing off like a dusty window and peeking through. <laughs> they were literally walking by storefronts and doing exactly what the businesses want you to do in order to get people to come inside. But because they sounded really flippant, in that interview then a different portland magazine kind of destroyed them and called it cultural appropriation which which i'm sure there's a case that it was and then it swirled so far out of control that they just shut down the whole thing they shut down their food cart they shut down the business the very reactionary article that had called it cultural appropriation they eventually took that down because uh, over at uprocks we really attacked them um, but the women also took down their business, so really no one succeeded in all of this. It was a very, you know, confusing thing, um, and it, it does feel very similar in some ways. I find the Cook's burrito incident more sad than this La Degracia, Disgracia. Yeah, I, I find it way more sad because seeing the media dis discourse around Cook's burrito made me feel that those two gals who brought burritos to Portland in that fashion, they were a hair away from having a great business that doesn't get touched, brings a great value to the area, brings great culture to the area. It was two, probably three wrong sentences in an yep. interview that really threw it up. Because uh, from what I remember, Cook's Burrito was well received before some, before that magazine. It was, it was smashing. It was doing really well. It was a breakfast burrito. We all live in, in <laughs> yeah. at least in the United States, we live in a burrito capital here in Orange County. You guys have profiled. I, I follow your Instagram and literally go on in the morning when I'm still in bed and watch you all eat breakfast burritos. <laughs> 
Because I'm like, that shit's dope. And, I, <laughs> well, and I'm hungry. And I, I track you, your life of burritos on Food Beast. So we know how good they are. And they were succeeding with them. And then, like you say, they had a couple sentences that they twisted wrong. And and it was, you know, I, I, I'm a traveler. I go to a lot of hostels. I sit down. I spin a lot of yarns. There is a big difference between... Or, or oh, actually, no, sorry. There's almost no difference between telling a story and kind of like hyping your shit up a little bit like that's really all that happened and it got taken in this weird way because you couldn't see the two young women kind of laughing and smiling and being like yeah we had this idea for a burrito place we watched the women for them i assume it was more like out of adoration like wow these women are really good at this now with all that said i can see like quick remedies for all of this right like the kooks burrito women could have gotten out ahead of it and said look we we were maybe a little flippant with mexican culture and feeling like we could encapsulate it in a burrito um after one week in puerto nuevo we're gonna go down there we paid the women you know a certain amount of money and we spent two days making tortillas with them and we're coming back and on our menu we actually say we make our own fresh tortillas with the recipes of blankety blank from Puerto Nuevo. Like, how cool would that be? Now, does like, that fix it? Because I think that's great. To me, but that's great. But that's again, a big I'm, step. Yeah. I mean, to me, that would be a big step. Because the issue is, like, at what point are you making a profit off of someone else's culture? And at what point are you doing that in a way that they historically haven't been able to do it in the United States? because of our system of discrimination that has existed since for as long as a bunch of Europeans took over the country from the native owners of it. Yeah. You know, like it, it's so deep seated in that way, right? Yeah, there's a lot of system systematic systemic issues here. Yeah. But like for for kooks, I got to go to the entrepreneurial side. This is where like kooks went and so, the two gals from kooks went learned quote like they may have stole whatever came back and didn't ask anyone's opinion on what they should do they just like created a business right. and ran with it that's where i think they're a notch a couple notches above this jenny gal in san diego who like is more tone deaf than the two who went to to mexico and got all that stuff and uh she has the audacity to ask other people for money she has that like when we first covered the uh, La De Gracia story, we had a lot of people come out in the comments that were like, are you being racist towards this white woman? Who like, is she not allowed to, are white people not allowed to cook foods of other cultures? And that brings up the privilege discussion. Like if you're, if you're using those comments, it's, it, I don't wanna discredit you, but I think there's, there's a, we need to understand the baseline of privilege before you can make those comments. If you can understand the baseline of privilege and still make those comments, I'm interested in hearing the full discussion. Mm. But like trying to, I saw a great video on Facebook the other day that kind of explains privilege. Is a, a group of kids uh, in a schoolyard all lined up, right? Black, white, Mexican, all colors of the rainbow. And this coach who's kind of this uh, emphatic speaker, he goes, guys, um, uh, we're going to race towards the end of this field. R and he starts 
putting up these like social constraints of like who gets a head start. So he's like, uh, raise your hand if you uh, had both parents in the household, right? A lot of white people walk up, right? Sure. Majority they get they get two steps ahead. Uh, raise your hand if um, you you always knew where your next meal was coming from. Boom, two two more steps ahead. Raise your hand if you never had to worry about paying for college. Two more steps ahead, and four or five questions in. The all the black is the disparity huge. is huge. The, the the black people and the people of color in in that in that video are still on the baseline, and then everyone else is multiple steps ahead. And then the coach goes, go ahead, race to the end. <laughs> right, right. Right? So people are already yards ahead. That is the idea of privilege. Now, I think it's fair. If you understand that, then we can discuss, is it racist to have this magnifying glass currently through media right now, liberal media, whatever, on white folks? Right. Like, it could be. Like, our, And I think we can go from there. Well, because I think a better question is... For, and we can speak about media both from the foodie side and obviously see from the uprock side is are these people more or less easy targets and is it easy journalism in some context because we're able to just be like hey there's this person who did this and we more or less know that there will be outrage we know or must less know there will be high engagement because you're presenting it as cultural misappropriation or appropriation which basically means the same thing now, those, yeah. those two phrases. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious, Stephen, your thoughts too from a media perspective because are we as Food Beast going out on a regular basis constantly looking for minority food stories and bringing them to light? Maybe in some context, but this was specifically brought to light because yes, it was an egregious send me money for based off of this video and a culturally tone-deaf video. Uh, but it was also kind of easy pickings for us, I think, because it's a culturally tone-deaf video and she's opening something that's food-related. Let's talk about it, right? Yeah. And so I think part, part of me, I can't help but bring the media perspective in because the media was also a big part of Kook's downfall. And so to me, what's the difference right. between between the decades of Bayless doing whatever, and, and obviously there's been media criticism and whatever, but for it to end a business, for us to end a business, was that because like it was easy pickings? Like there is nothing that this the Kooks burrito gals can do realistically. I mean, they might've been able to, to repair a PR move and go down there. There's nothing that Jennifer can do in this situation outside of kind of take it down. And so, I, are we too touchy? Because like that's the one of the comments that I had to pick apart or I had to I had to talk about is someone left. People are too touchy nowadays. There are an awful lot of crappy dough circles out there. People are calling bagels, but I'm not hitting the interweb to trash or protest them. I just don't buy them. The thing is, protesters don't own anything. They aren't risking anything. They wouldn't even buy the fruit thingies anyway. He's referring to the fruit that would be served at the fruiteria. They should have simply been ignored. And if the juicy store failed, then the idea just sucked. Jenny could have even made a difference in the neighborhood, but we'll never know because the protesters were just too touchy. So I think I think this commenter is wrong. I think I think the commenter is wrong because the the he he's basically saying from what I understand, let the free market decide. 
Let mm-hmm. the, let them decide. I think the very idea of a Kickstarter is you you need affirmation. You can't just start it and let the free market decide. You put out a video asking our opinion to venture to try to get funds for it. I saw your video and I didn't like it. I'm not even. It doesn't even offend me personally. Like I'm I'm just looking at. I'm just like I think your Kickstarter sucks. Right. Right. So. Yeah, I, I can say whatever the fuck I want because you asked my opinion by putting it on Kick. That's the problem with Kickstarter. I mean, or it's the problem with it, it, it is you are the proving ground of his point, right? He says, let let the market decide. And you are part of the market. And now you've decided. <laughs> so so he's he's right and you're right. Like I, I agree completely with everything you're saying. When I was in college in San Diego, I was. It was the middle of oh, finals. Yeah, it was San Diego. It's perfect. Yeah, this is a, this is a little anecdote. It has nothing to do with race. <laughs> it was the middle of finals, and there were, everyone was crowded into this cool coffee shop, and there were these two young women next to me. They're about my age, and they start this huge fight. They get in a fight with one another, and I'm an actor. I was studying acting, <laughs> and I was like, I was alone at the coffee shop. I'm also like, I'm a little bit of a rabble rouser. I was alone <laughs> at the coffee shop. And they start this fight, and inside my head, I was like, this shit's fake. It's fake. What they're doing is fake. And I looked over at them, and I said, listen, I know that your fight is fake. So please don't do it, because I do have a final. Like, my final's real, and your fight's fake. And it got real weird, and they froze, and it got awkward, and they looked at each other, and then they walked out. And I walked out a few minutes later. And they were waiting for me. <laughs> and they walked up to me and they said, you're, a, I, I won't say it on air. I know the petite, the delicate ear, ears of, of Food Beast podcast <laughs> listeners. Um, they say, you're this because that was a super cool social experiment we were doing for our class and you ruined it. And I said, no, you got the result of your social experiment. <laughs> if you pretend to fight and people think it's bullshit, then they're going to ask you to shut up. <laughs> like, that is the result. And so in your case, like, I, I really defend you guys running something because your point to her is if you present this, if you act like this fruteria conquistador who, like, <laughs> invented fruit smoothies all of a sudden... Um, then we have the right to respond to it. And I, I 100% believe that. I think the thing that would be interesting, and this is so, so as you know, but, but maybe uh, not all your listeners do, I also write novels for kids. And novels for kids right now, the, the book market for kids is really all about diversity. It's really focused on diversity. There was this amazing movement, really cool. We need diverse books. And it was just a really neat thing. And my first book was coming out about time some of these discussions were happening. And there was a lot of, there have been big articles in, um, on Vulture, on uh, different mainstream websites about how the, what we call the YA, young adult uh, Twitter atmosphere, the Twitter sphere, attacks people who are writing poorly about people of color, uh, particularly white writers who handle race poorly. And I, I really like, because I had a novel coming out and I was terrified about getting called out, uh, and because you know one of the, the primary characters in my book is a Japanese girl, which I am not, um, 
I was really like curious and I talked to a friend of mine I was on tour with a friend of mine who's who is a black writer and he said listen at some point everyone's gonna get called out the point is one don't let it shut you up but two like take the time to listen so I would urge this woman running the fruteria you got called out there were clearly errors being made there was clearly a mishandling with the way that that you shot the video you don't have to close your fruteria. You don't have to not have it. But listen to what people are saying. Listen to people's concerns. Let them feel listened to. I mean, the, the number one thing that, I, that in my conversations with people of color in this country is like, part of having a seat at the table is being heard at the table, right? And so the thing to do, I, I really don't like what the Kooks Burrito young women did and just closing your place or ripping your thing off Kickstarter and saying, no, it's off. I, I think the real win is to say, wow, like there's stuff I need to listen to, stuff I need to get better educated about, conversations I need to have, people I want to talk with. And then I do feel like I can get to the point where I have the confidence that I could open a fruteria. Because we don't want to live in a world that is so segregated that, you know, you walk into a Mexican restaurant and if there's a white guy at the, at the fryer that you're like, sorry, no way I'm eating that. That's a white dude. Yeah. You know, like we just don't want to exist in that world. It, it's, it's a really sad spiral that we could start to go down. So do you think it, in the food to read example, is it disrespect? Is it ignorance and or is it? perceived misrepresentation like what's the how could she do better restart if she before you know she published that video is like what's your formula for if you were to do part two again mm. what what could she do and what can the potential person listening to this podcast right now starting a restaurant starting yeah. a restaurant learn from the situation if they don't get the subtleties of and the miscues of what happened in that video. Because that's the balance, because it was scary writing and green light. I didn't write this piece. Evan did uh, a great job writing it. Um, but it's scary green lighting it, because at the end of the day, whether she's asking for money or not, like you're, 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 a small business is in the crosshairs. Right. So There's a person behind it. Yeah, there's, there's a, a person. Who's probably well-intentioned. And, and, like this woman is probably was probably not at that North Carolina rally with all the no. fucking <laughs> assholes with their tiki torches, Yo, right? Like she probably thinks of herself as the exact opposite of a racist. And I, 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 don't, I don't categorize her as a racist at sure. all. I think she's, I, I think she was very well-intentioned. I think every everything about what she was trying to achieve, I can see how it sound good to her, and it's the idea of privilege that like put the blinders on for her that she didn't realize that like I'm talking a lot about Mexican culture and I don't have a single Mexican person in my video. Mm -hmm. It's just me, and the only people of any ethnicity in my video are the paintings on the walls, and I'm just walking around this barrio. So, it I don't want. Going back to like our responsibility on the media side is I don't want to scare young budding entrepreneurs, old budding entrepreneurs of pursuing a restaurant 
that may not be the culture you grew up with. Right. Food being snuff rocks are not here to ruin <laughs> your not business. What we want. We're not That's out here calling each other late at night. Like, which business can we take down that? <laughs> Up Rocks will take Cook's Burrito. You guys take the Fruiteria. We'll destroy these young, ambitious entrepreneurs. Ooh, let a white guy open a Lebanese restaurant, please. <laughs> no, and genuinely, if a white guy decides he can make a falafel, like if he studies and makes a falafel better than the next person, like, I will frequent and patronize your spots right. to the ends of the earth. I love that. And so the point is, Discussions like this are good, and the amazing articles, if you guys haven't read it, that Steve and his team did at UpRocks, the title of you want to Google it is Examining the Kooks Burrito Uproar and the Fight Over a Food Appropriation. Um, he does like a round table with his team, and I, there's just great stuff there because at the end of the day, the kind of the conclusion you guys came to is like, look, it's not an easy conversation to have, but having it progresses it. Sure. And the more you understand it, like if you read this article, and just understand that like be a good person and be humble and you'll by default start respecting the culture that you're trying to do and maybe sure. that's what is missing from her video the most is a sense of humility right so like you asked that question what would you do different like i i actually have advised on a fair few restaurants i i sometimes get called and asked to advise restaurateurs um they basically just want to be on Food Beast. Like, <laughs> I don't work for you guys, so it's not a conflict of interest. Um, but, but so here's what I would say. Here's what I would say. First of all, you know, there's that common saying around Halloween: "My culture is not a costume, right? Like, mm -hmm. he, my culture um, or like a, a Native American headdress is not your way to get candy for free. Pretty fair. Seems reasonable to me." I would say the same thing and uh, change costume for branding, right? Mm -hmm. My culture is not your branding. So if I was going to, if she said, I want to do a fruteria, I would say, how about this? <laughs> I am inspired by incredible fruterias I have visited across Mexico. I have a juice bar. <laughs> <laughs> it's a juice bar. And our recipes are inspired by fruteria recipes. We're inspired by the colors of a good fruteria. We're inspired by the way they handle fruit. She seems to like, you know, I've been to a lot of fruiterias that have dragon fruit. She seems to like dragon fruit. I saw it in a lot of the videos. It's a sexy fruit. It looks cool. Um, you know, so, so say that and don't put someone's culture as part of your branding just like don't put someone's neighborhood as part of your branding right because mm. you said she said it's an up-and-coming neighborhood and the natural response with you know barrio logan or wherever you are is to say well well it was always here for us so what you're really saying is it's up and coming in the minds of white people mm. and that's where it gets like so deeply kind of like where it turns your stomach when you hear it you go well what do you what do you mean like was there no population there and now there is a population or do you mean that the population is skewing more towards a way where i feel connected because i'm white you know and i i see that stuff happening all the time total side rant now yes i just want to give like a total side rant that is connected to this this could get me in trouble the internet, if you're tweeting, tweet at me right now and you could ruin my career potentially. Let's do it, dog. Here it is. We, I, no, it's, well, spicy take. Yeah, Make sure you're looking at the camera. <laughs> this is big. I, 
I'm a I'm a white heterosexual male. At some point, I'm going to get a drubbing about issues of race, sexuality, um, and gender. At some point, I am because I write about those issues, and I clearly write about them from the prism of a white heterosexual male. Um, you know, I wrote I wrote a book about a young adventurer whose best friend was Japanese. I grew up, my best friend was Japanese. She was my cousin. His best friend is is pressured a little bit to play the violin by her grandfather. I grew up with a best friend who was pressured a little, a little bit to play the violin with her grandfather. Now in the book, I felt like I really spun it in a way that was very funny, both for the grandfather character and the girl. But a critic did mention specifically that she felt like that character was stereotyped. So I've, I've taken a few punches on the chin. I was stealing from someone who wanted me to steal from them, a friend in my real life, and I was representing my real life, and yet, you know, I was still criticized over it. Point being, we're all, we're all gonna take shots on this one. With that said, I had a writer last week who, I, last week I was invited to the, the Houston Book Festival. I flew down there, I experienced Houston. I had a writer who took me around Houston. She is a young black woman, so her experience is a fair bit different than mine. And after spending a weekend in Houston, I asked her, I was like, Houston seems really interesting to me. I was like, it feels like, and this sounds so crazy in 2017, it sounds so absurd. It feels like people like each other regardless of their race they're existing pretty well and they like each other and they like to be around each other she wrote this amazing piece for me this past week about seven things houston gets right and her number one thing that houston gets right is this idea of race and the thing that it reminded me of is sometimes these issues about race and gender and sexuality, which need to happen. The conversations need to happen. I am not saying, when you tweet me, when you at me, I'm not saying the conversation doesn't need to happen. It absolutely does. But sometimes they happen in this very cerebral online space, which is fine, again, fine. If you are advocating for your culture online and that is the safe space to do it, I want you to do that. I'm, I'm hedging my bets here. But also, <laughs> Out in the real world, there are real humans getting along with other real humans, you know? And I think that that's the, an important thing for us to not lose sight of. Because the truth is, this lady would probably walk in, just like the Kooks Burrito Girls, they would probably walk into a restaurant down in uh, Puerto Nuevo and ask, if they had the foresight to ask the women, they would probably be incredibly friendly. They would probably be incredibly pleasant. They would probably make friends. This woman down in Barrio Logan, if she walked around and got to know the neighbors to the building she has rented out, I'm sure she would be friendly. I'm sure she would make friends. I, we can't assume the worst about her, being tone deaf is almost inherent to being white. Mm. We are, it, it is so embedded in us because we haven't had to ever worry about being anything other than white. When you, when, when I talk to friends who are, you know, okay, I'm gonna use the most delicate ones so that I don't get criticized. My wife is an Iranian immigrant and a refugee. So she's like the trifecta and has lived inside her skin of being a Muslim in America and an immigrant in America and a refugee in America her whole life. 
Can I empathize with that? Absolutely. Can I sympathize with it? No, I, I've never had that experience. I've never thought about my skin. I walk around and this is just my skin. I get to walk into any building. I get to talk to anyone. I never have to think about it. I've lived in East Africa and never thought about it. So there's part of white privilege is that we're all fucking tone deaf and we are all going to get called out and we are all we all need to weather that storm because God knows everyone who we've been horrible to has weathered way worse storms from us and then culture can start to move forward. That's what I think. Damn. There's some levels there. There's some there's some levels there because I think you you spoke so eloquently about because I'm trying to see the side of some of these commenters that are calling the current wave of media essentially against white culture or trying to figure out what white culture is and for the first time in history we're realizing I was about to say the most racist shit ever. What culture? Like yeah. the 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 original appropriators of coming over and columbusing this place? Yeah. Like and I like I'm trying to see their side. So is is this is there too much? Like are we can we can we criticize <clears throat> too much right now where white folks are under too big a microscope? Too big a, like you spoke greatly f for that right now but that's like that I'm just trying to see their side at all I mean the microscope that exists now has existed for minorities a lot for the existence of time before now right yeah. so I think like forever <laughs> yeah. so I think we like yet yeah, I think there's a like take it on the chin. There, there's Let's a go. there's a justified question in what you just said, but we also have to put that asterisk on it of like when you compare the microscopes and the spotlights, like they don't compare. Right. That being said, my question is, what's happening now? Why is it happening now? In the sense of there just seems to be this decimation toward anything privilege and anything. Uh, from an injustice and power perspective, right? We're seeing this across not only in like the political spectrum or whatever, but we're also seeing it like in Weinstein and we're seeing it in the restaurant groups in mm. New Orleans and Chicago that are getting taken down for for sexual allegations, right? The and, privilege isn't in the race. And, and I understand solely. part of that is very strong voices, a lot of them being minority or female voices, saying something and that courage is leading to the women's movement and that's leading to more people speaking up about producers and heads of news organizations and all sorts of things but i'm also curious generally as just a person not as a japanese american not as a pub publisher of content of yeah what wh why but why now like why not last year or the year before and is maybe it's Again, just throwing things out there, but like related to what's happening in our political cycle is just such a catalyst that it has like if we're going to continue down this path, we have to keep talking. We have to have conversations. We have to keep bringing this up because there's a chance that we could continue to go backwards. And I don't know if that's it. 
But, you know, in general, there's just been this proliferation of media, like, and we're part of it. Food Beast is part of it. The reason we can take down this person, and again, it's justified, but it's also, it's also good for business. Like, the, the story is engaging. People want to hear it. People want to hear our perspective. And so I don't know if three years ago, like, say three years ago, there's a Kickstarter for La Gracia, like, do we cover it? I don't know. Like, I don't know. Do we cover it if we hadn't had gone through the kooks incident and right. we hadn't gone through things like that? We know now it's a news story because of everything that happened with, with kooks and previous things. And so that's kind of my question to you guys and not semi-rhetorical, but also if there's an answer, there, you know, why now? Versus... Is the ship trying to right itself? Like, has the ship always been trying to right itself? Yeah. <laughs> like, and like, and as, all the ways it was writing itself prior to this, and probably some of the ways that it's still writing itself now, are still behind, right? So it's like what we thought was racial progress in the 90s in 2017 looks backward. What we thought was gender-based progress in the 90s in 2017 looks backward. And so it's like the ship is trying to write itself and I think like what's happening with a lot of the conservative American movement is they're saying like fuck the chip is is right <laughs> all right like it's right they just want it to be right but they they're not willing to admit no hell no the ship is still tipped mostly towards white people this ship is still captained by a white man who has never had to reject white supremacy openly which is is crazy so it's like clearly there's still a lot of power being warehoused there. Um, so I guess why now is like the ultimate question would be because people finally care. And that's so many things that have conspired towards that. And it's the ultimate story of like, if you want to make a cool omelet, like a multicultural omelet, you're going to have to break a couple kooks, burritos and fruiterias. <laughs> like, and it's sad, you know, but it is. It's like there are going to be casualties there are, there are there are going to be people who got called out for the wrong reasons and their their careers didn't quite bounce back there are going to be that's just like an inevitability of the place we're in now i do think that we have to there has to be my problem with twitter is that it lasts forever right like i could tweet something that i thought was was smart and turned out to be culturally insensitive and someone could pull it back seven years later and be like i screenshotted this don't read this guy's article because he did this you know i i think that's tricky there has to be i wish there was a sin and forgiveness period on the internet or in this world i wish there was a because i, I do hope that the kooks burrito girls try to start another restaurant one day i, I do so. and i hope that ambitious fruiteria model you know, tries to start another restaurant one day. I, I hope that people do this stuff. There's just got to be this corrective time. One more. I want to give you guys one more anecdote because I think it's interesting for the conversation. Over the summer, I'm really interested. I also am the travel editor at Uproxx. I'm really interested in festivals and festival culture, like the, the modern bohemian hippie festival culture. Like Burning Man, there's this whole series called Symbiosis. And over the summer, I went to one of these Symbiosis festivals. And I came back 
with a bunch of photos and I ran a big photo thing because it was sexy festival people and I knew that it would get a ton of page views. I also understand the business that we're in. Um, and someone said to me, they were like, this is kind of appropriative. It's a lot of white people with dreadlocks. And the dreadlocks being appropriative because they were, um, you know, stolen from, it was a hairstyle popularized by, by African-Americans, even though it didn't start there, but was popularized by African-Americans or, or black people in Jamaica or wherever. And, and they were penalized for having it and weren't allowed to have that hairstyle at work. And there was a long, dark period where, you know, people were, you know, getting, having a tough time at their jobs because of their hairstyles. And now a bunch of white hippies go to symbiosis and they all wear dreadlocks and it's all cool. So someone said, like, this is appropriative. And what I was interested by, by this hippie festival out in the desert, was that if you had gone up to them and gone, like, your dreadlocks are appropriative, they would have looked at you like you were from fucking Mars. Because they feel like they are operating on a higher level where you get to just wear the hairstyle you like because you fucking like it. <laughs> okay? And you can debate that, and you can say, "Sorry, we live in the real world. It is appropriative. There is a there is a history here. There are people who have been discriminated against, and that's fine." But at their festival, you would have been looked at like you were from Mars had you called their hairstyles appropriative. Point being, some of this stuff that we are culturally edgy about, um, you know, Kim Kardashian wearing box braids or something like that. I I wonder if at some point it's going to have to mellow out. Otherwise, we're moving towards almost like a, a sort of cultural segregation. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I could be wrong about that. Again, that's coming from the prism of a white male who's hoping that people can just get along and not who hasn't who hasn't doesn't have a deep seated anger because my culture hasn't been bigoted against. Yeah. So maybe I'm absolutely wrong. That Maybe like kind of cool off, don't be so triggered kind of well, shit saying, is, is... I'm saying one day that needs to happen. Yeah. I think that right now we need to keep getting triggered. We're obviously in a bad place. I think we need to keep having these conversations. I think that we need to talk about fruiterias where they're acting like they invented the neighborhood they exist in and they acted like they invented uh, this brand. I think we need to talk about burrito places where people are being flippant and acting like they stole recipes from you know Mexican women working in Puerto Nuevo. We need to talk about those things. I'm just saying one day, ideally, some of these conversations would mellow out. Yeah. <sighs> that reminded me of the Jeremy Lin dreadlock situation that was going on. Yeah. You remember that? Like, yeah, similar. You know? Um, I'm, I'm curious from, a, and again, I keep wearing my like media hat on but whenever i have someone else in media i just like steve's here we can talk about media <laughs> things <laughs> well because right for me if food and restaurants specifically are part of the are part of this systematic uh are, are just part of this system that uh allows people of specific gender or specific race to have a better chance at succeeding a better chance at getting investment or a better chance at opening a restaurant for whatever the many factors that exist but if it's inherently true if we take that as inherently true that it's easier for a white male to become an executive chef and open a restaurant than others 
for me, I'm curious because that would just be made on uh, on pure numbers. I would also guess that the things that we cover at Food Beast tend to somewhat simulate those numbers because we're just responding to the things that are new and out there, right? And so we don't take the, we gotta go find the white person lens and we gotta go find the, the restaurant that's owned by a specific race. But part of me, and this is a question for both you guys, is, is that subconsciously still supporting the systemic privilege because mm -hmm. we're not specifically looking for the stories beyond that and because it's a numbers game we're covering the stories that are just in front of us and i can't speak for the uprock side but on food beast our editorial is pretty crude in how we get our leads so we have a tip line we people submit leads via instagram a majority of our leads are based on the visual aesthetic of food and so who know like we just put up a video today of an Al Pastor pizza. I'm not particularly sure uh, what who the what race the proprietor of that shop did. I think it's like was that Rose City Pizza? Is he? Do you know? Yeah. yeah. Is he? What? What? Who is the owner? I don't. He, he's Asian. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So like, for all intents and purposes, like Asian Asian American male yeah. right izzy who owns rose city pizza is now doing an al pastor pizza which i find kind of beautiful <laughs> right <laughs> but which also can be spun and immediately into a headline that would gain traction of like the the exact situation we're talking about if we chose to frame it that way but I, the rose city pizza situation which is not a situation is they didn't check they didn't hit the check marks that trigger us Right? They didn't come out the gate saying, this is the most authentic way to eat El Pastor, <laughs> right? right? We're, it's just, it's we get it. It's a pizza, which is Italian. You have Pastor, which is Mexican roots and some Lebanese roots. And it's on a pizza. No, like, I don't care what race the chef that made that is. And not finding out he's Asian American, beautiful. Right. Like, the pizza's damn good from this place. The Pastor looks amazing. It looks crazy. It looks like Pastor should look. And there has to be cultural appreciation. We have to be able to appreciate each other's cultures. If not, then we really are. Then we have decided that we want to be tribalized and segregated. And that's like, just beautiful about America, right? Right. Like, it's just it's just how we spin it and how it comes off and how I mean, to it, the, the food and wine thing is a perfect example. So a couple uh, nearly a oh, year yeah. ago now, food and wine did this thing and it was like, this is how you should be eating pho. And then it was like a white chef making it and a white chef doing it and it was like a weird riff on it. And it was like. Why say that? <laughs> so it's like sometimes we as the media get ourselves into these places by trying to be definitive. Now, if we really wanted to go deep top media on some different podcast that was about what it's like to run a media business, we would say like the part of that is like there's an audience problem too because people really click on stuff that's super definitive instead of like this is one way to eat pho you might like other ways <laughs> like I wouldn't their, click it yeah, right their editor had pressure to get the clicks he wrote this is the, the next way to eat pho this is the one way to eat pho he had pressure to get the clicks we all know that headline structuring I mean, I always joke I came from the magazine business and in glossy magazines where you have a captive audience I used to write pieces about travel and it would be like 
the sun, the sand, and the sea. <laughs> a weekend in Jamaica. And now I write travel pieces that say like, here are four reasons why if you don't go to Jamaica this year, you're a fucking dickhead. And you will die of chlamydia. Right, you're going to die That's alone. Just... You will never have sex again if you're not in Jamaica by June. Uh, and so we know the structuring of this business. And I do think the onus is on us to be sensitive. And I think the, the best way to do that is through writers. The best way for me to do that is for, through writers. So I have a Native American writer named Zach Johnson. He knows a ton about... <laughs> Name Zach Johnson. Yeah. Sorry. Name <laughs> Zach Johnson. Exactly. Na- named, That's where the Johnsons came I, from. Named Hank Thomas. <laughs> uh, no, he's a great writer and he knows a ton about food. Um, but because he's Native American, he also is really plugged into the to the fight to restore Native American foodways to the United States. So he interviewed this guy, Sean Sherman, who's up in Minnesota, who started a food truck called the Tatanka truck. It's a really cool thing. He interviewed these other guys down in Colorado who's, who are trying to start like a Native American fast casual. He has really stayed on top of it and really stayed on top of that space by having you know, food media is also incredibly white. By having food writers who are people of color, food writers who, um, you know, are black, Asian, Native American, all these things, Mexican, you're going to get this wider view of inputs of like, hey, this is important to our culture. And, and you're gonna get better pitches because of it. I think what happened, what always gets mocked is like the idea of Andy Ricker the, the guy who started Pock Pock, he's a white dude. Now, he was very respectful. He went to Chiang Mai, which like, <laughs> in his origin story, like Chiang Mai is kind of a whack place to learn about food, but, <laughs> but whatever. I spent a lot of time in Thailand. I don't think like if I was going for a Thai food education, that's necessarily what I, where I would go. But he knows a ton about Northern Thai food. He was in Northern Thailand. He paid people money to teach him. He trained. He took time, he brought it back, he honored them on his menu, he did all those steps right. Now the step that got wrong with him was not his, it was the food media, who all of us, right, who said, meet the man who is bringing back sophisticated Thai food. And that was his brand. And it was this guy is bringing real you know, Thai food had been so popular in America, but it hadn't been regionalized. Restaurants didn't know how to say, uh, sorry, even Thai restaurants run by Thai people because they had to feed into what people wanted. They didn't know how to say like, sorry, we don't have Pad Thai. We don't have Pad CU. We have these Northern regional dishes. Rickard did that. And so people treated him like some sort of messiah for regionalized Thai food when that was maybe too bold of a claim, I think that that a more interesting headline in that case would be, why does Andy Ricker feel like the Messiah of Thai food when really a lot of Thai people have wanted to cook regionalized Thai food for a long ass time but can't because the market won't support it because (laughs) you guys insist on having this fucking Pad Thai, which, you know, like that would be better as a headline, except it's long. But I, I think so, like, that is where I, I cede to your point and say, like, yeah, the media business sometimes creates this in so many different ways by through not being diverse, through telling certain stories, through, you know, propagating these white savior narratives. Um, Look at you know. Steve Ells. I mean, Chipotle. I, I, yeah. I, like, 
he and we've had a lot of these things right yeah. like and it was worse before i do it is important to remember like these issues because they're coming up and because we're taking all these deep pimples and popping them our our complexion as a multicultural society is getting better you know cuz we're popping all our pimples the pimples were worse before in the 80s it would literally be like a white chef and the article in Gourmet in 1980 would be like, finally, Southern food matters. <laughs> you know, when like there's this huge Southern food tradition and this white chef had come in and, and stolen recipes from a people who had been, had nothing but things stolen from them, you know, for the, since the history of their arrival on this land and was seeming like a hero, right? So it's like, I do think some of these conversations are progressing. I just think they're painful as they progress. I mean, Food Network is painfully progressive. That just made me think of like Bobby Flay introducing us to like tangy Asian barbecue. Like <laughs> not even not even like giving us like, is this Korean barbecue? It's like, this is just like some, some Asian barbecue with tangy sauce. Like this is the new wave. Like, nah, dude, Korean barbecues have existed for quite some time. Can you narrow it down a bit? Like, right. Where, where, where is this marinade coming from? And it like, because of the lack of diversity on Food Network, like you have to hear it from Bobby Flay. Who else, who on the network are you gonna hear it from? Like, Giada? Right. <laughs> so, it's funny, we're doing a bit of research before this, because I was just trying to figure out like, what food is intrinsically like American or intrinsically, white american like what <laughs> and so there's a fun piece on get, let get name name one food off the top of your guys's head that's like intrinsically we don't necessarily have to pay super homage to any other country um <laughs> well i mean i i actually think that i could i could probably name some um and i'll start naming some too. okay tomato sandwich and grilled cheese Ooh, that's actually not on this list but i, I uh that. Let me think of another. I mean, I, I think <laughs> ranch dressing. <laughs> ranch dressing. Ranch dressing so American. Oh, um, shit. Uh, macaroni and cheese. Yeah, although you would, I, I think there would be a right. lot of people who would suggest that, well, and just that macaroni and cheese has deeper cultural ties even in America than it does to white America. Boxed macaroni and cheese we could take. Mm, there we go. Uh, <laughs> We're here just claiming shit. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I have a I have a brilliant writer who said something in that appropriation piece that I loved. He said, you know, we it's tricky because white culture is appropriation. Mm. The history of white culture is and this is his joke, I, I don't want to appropriate it. It, the history of white culture is going around to different places like those seagulls uh, in the movie Finding Nemo and just going mine, mine, yeah. mine, mine and taking people, stealing people's cultures and at the very best remixing them. But most of the time over the course of history, literally just stealing them. That's one of your writers, Vince, right? Vince Mancini. So yeah. Vince, right after that, he talks about mine, mine, mine. He goes, going to a foreign land and bringing the cool foods you find there back to your home country is a tradition older than tacos. It's not a good tradition, sure, but I'm not certain a world where white people only cook mayo sandwiches and bratwurst <laughs> is better. I was dying when I heard that line. That was amazing. Because, yeah. yeah, I mean, and if, if we can learn any from, anything from this is we have to, like, we're just the Reddit of people. <laughs> Brandon just texted me that. Um, that's. <laughs> it's just like if every conversation we have where we have to make an example of someone, if we can follow it up with what we can learn and progress, 
that becomes exponentially more important and yeah. less like knocking people. Like I didn't want this piece to knock this girl down, but it hopefully with her, with this example, the next five concepts that people may have had more questions about how like we want, I want more, like I wish I want more fruterias on our block. We have right. great, like, you know what I mean? Like if someone can do that and, and pay I homage, also like, want inspired by a fruteria. I also want that too. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Fine. Yeah. Like I want the fruteria. I want that. But I also want the super Instagrammable white chick version that says I was really inspired by fruterias and I wanted to make it with, you know, organic ingredients that maybe weren't in the tradition of a downtown Santa Ana fruteria, right? Yeah. Uh, there is room under the tent for a lot of things. I mean, and, and I think part of it is like we have to keep having these conversations. So I, I would actually, here's my, my last attempt at a three-pointer. I've set myself up for like so much criticism through my mansplaining, whitesplaining of what I think some of these issues are. But I will say this. There also has to be a burden on the audience. I want the audience who clicked and shared and got outraged about your story about the Fruteria to come back next week when you guys have me back with the woman as a guest so that she can explain herself and think through it. With a Mexican-American who lives in Barrio Logan as a guest who can explain, um, you know, why that could be offensive so that she can look at someone across the table and go like i'm sorry like seeing you say that i'm sorry because i didn't mean to offend you i thought i was being cool and and that's like where progress comes and we have to be able to ask the audience to still tune in for that part you it's so shitty to just tune in for the outrage mm. and not the processing of the outrage and that, that is done on all sides. I mean, that's done on the very leftist liberal side. It's done on the very conservative side. It's done everywhere. Is people, people love the outrage, but not necessarily the processing and the hard work of like mitigating the outrage. That's the challenge. That's my last attempt at a... Well, and especially if the same people that are commenting with that outrage, just being open enough to, if this, if Jennifer did want to still continue, right? I can just imagine the situation where low-key, she finds a different location, she goes back to Mexico, she does everything you said, Steve, right? Sure. She goes back, she figures it out, and she does want to do better. The first the first media coverage would be like, she's back, she's doing the fruteria, you can't <laughs> right. believe it. And then it would just be outrage again when yeah i think there's a responsibility both on the media and the audience side for the people that were commenting can you at least have an open ear if she is going to turn about face and do the right things be open to that and receiving that because i think in general the the vitriol creates this wall right and it's just like and i'm gonna stay here and throw stones because this is wrong and you know what you're justified it's wrong you're right but then if someone's gonna meet you at that wall like can we can we can bring that down a bit and i yeah. think that's the i think you're right steve i think that's not only our job to further that conversation and look out for the story that's the 2.0 of what this person or what 
even not her, even the next person that happens to be in a similar situation, but the the people who are listening right now to also that are that are Latino American and that criticize Jennifer and what she did to to be open to that conversation because I I don't I don't think I know that many people in media or otherwise that the would be looking for that story. Yeah, we I mean we got to have a return to nuance, right? The Mike story, I I mean uh, the Cooks burrito story, I screenshotted a headline by Mike. Do you have it there? Yeah, it's at the very top. Let's pull it up. Let's pull it up. It's at the very top of the article. Here we go. Now, we run a, we're all in the media business. We know what it takes to get clicks. The headline by Mike says, "These white cooks bragged about stealing recipes from Mexico to start a Portland business." That is such a far cry from what they did is such like a willful obtusity, such an intentional and blatant version of spinning something to make it look terrible. And it was such a shame to see that. And we called it out in our headline. And they, to their credit, Mike changed their headline. Hmm. Um, and I appreciate that they did that. Their article was actually relatively nuanced. They their article was nuanced, their headline Their headline not. needed to get clicks. And it becomes so tricky. It, it just becomes a tricky place. And I, I think that we need, it's a responsibility. I guess, I guess then this becomes a thing, right? I keep joking about how many times I've given people a chance to decimate my career during this podcast. Maybe the ultimate answer is don't. <laughs> Both because I started the podcast and now I'm ending it with saying I have a, a four-day-old four son. <laughs> I'd really like him to not be homeless this week. But also, also because there has to be, we have to discuss this stuff with a degree of nuance and we have to discuss this stuff. We can't just splash from outrage to outrage like we're stomping in puddles. We have to sweep up a puddle and then move on to the next one. The splash helps. It makes everyone know there's a puddle, but it doesn't do shit unless we actually deal with them as we go. Because um, I was gonna, I was gonna write a follow-up piece on this, but so we've covered the race side. Is there? I'm, I'm gonna bring it back to entrepreneurial side, <laughs> just just to close this shit out because to, I want to get a full full-fledged piece about this. Can we discuss the lazy entrepreneurial side of this at all? Like, let's let's say, let's say she had hammered the race home perfectly. I guess it would have helped. It would have helped her story. She would have gained more financing for this project. But man, from seeing the struggle of like other entrepreneurs, of other restaurateurs, even outside the food industry, like I just think that's so lazy. Am I am I just like nitpicking on some <laughs> stupid shit? Am I just like the only one? Because like all three of us here have like. Did you ask for crowdfunding for your book, or did you just go no, write the no, fucking book yeah. and sell the script like I mean, a man? <laughs> everyone who everyone who sees Kickstarter knows that it can be incredibly lazy. Like, if we were having a private conversation at a bar right now, I would have a big rant about Kickstarter. But the ultimate thing with Kickstarter is like, if you don't want to donate to it, don't fucking donate to it. And if you do, people have done dumber shit with their money than donating to a dumb fruteria. Right, like, so it's like I don't actually take much issue with that. Um, I mean, it used to get me so spewing mad. I financed, tra I I traveled around the world for years and years 
by like working at hostels and shit. And then I got home and the internet revolution started and Kickstarter started and I saw other young people doing what I was doing and they were just doing it by like having people tithe money to them <laughs> as if they were like missionaries oh. or some shit. <laughs> I was like, what are you, you're like people are paying you to go on rope swings. This is the dopest job in America. Like you're not giving them anything. You're like, write what? You're gonna write them an email once a month? Like that's your your highest level. <laughs> Give me fifty dollars. You get a you get a private email about my cool adventure. <laughs> I'll send you a flat Stanley from wherever I'm at. Right. Next. It's crazy. Like yeah, you'll get a patch from Barbados. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I think. For me, that's just like a secondary issue of if something's whack, don't support it. And I think this is very important. I have an African-American writer who, who made this point to me often. She was like, she's like, the reason why, why Steve keeps hoping that one day some of these appropriation conversations will be something that we age out of is because Steve, Steve's, she calls it my caucasity, Steve's <laughs> caucasity um, distracts him from the fact that there's appropriation and then there's just douchebaggery and he accidentally sees douchebaggery as appropriation and recognizes that and wants to age out of it. Real appropriation is always going to be there. You're never, there's never going to be a time where you should go to walk around the street doing, you know, that this thing above your mouth and wearing a Native American headdress if that's not your culture. That's fucking awful. There's never going to be a time like in, in, 2070 where you should go around wearing blackface and thinking that that's funny has it has ugly roots don't ever do it so her point is like most of the stuff that steve thinks we should age out of are just douchebaggery and not actually appropriation mm. and, and so she the one that said basically like, just be a good person yeah that's the legend joseph her basic philosophy on all this stuff is like just stop being assholes um, and and be considerate. So that's a good ending. Don't hey, be food beast. Be a good person. Yeah, we'll we'll look into ourselves too and say the same shit, and we'll we'll try to get better. Also, um, that was a I, I had a lot of fun on that. that Steve, a, where can we follow you? Yeah, bro. At Steve Bram everywhere. I got at Steve Bram lockdown. I Columbus it. It's in my culture. <laughs> my culture is stealing at Steve Bram. Actually, my real name is Stefano Antonio Bramucci. Sono Italiano. So you could maybe say that I had to hide my culture to become the internet <laughs> sensation that I have become. I'm at Steve Bram everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, uh, Steve Bramucci on Facebook. Um, you know, come visit us. When you're done with your time at Food Beast, come visit us at Uproxx. Mm. The two sites, I think, dance really well together if you're at work. Um, Those I have, are my two homepages, bro. Jump yeah. between an Uproxx and a Food Beast. Do it. I have I have uh, a book out. It's called The Danger Gang and the Pirates of Borneo. If you have if you have 10-year-olds in your life and they like pirates. I do have a signed copy that I'm auctioning off. Trying to get that money. <laughs> trying to get that money. Uh, you can hit, I'm going to put the eBay link in. <laughs> In the podcast description, it, it, the description. it is signed. It is signed. signed. Um, it does say my name in it, but <laughs> so right. if there's another get, Eli out there. I can with get the more e signed copies for the Food Beast Familia. <laughs> oh, shit. Well, you thank guys you, are the best. Man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you, man. Follow Eli, Book of Eli. Mm -hmm. Follow myself, Jeff, at Jeffrey Kutnick. And follow Food Beast everywhere. And please, please, please leave your comments in the iTunes and Apple Store. We love to hear them, good or bad. 
give us topics, give us guests, opinions. Come at them everything. with nuance. Yeah, with nuance. Tell them to have Steve back and don't <laughs> destroy my career. Steve, I have, you hold the record. Four, there's a four-day-old baby relying on you, Food Beast fans. <laughs> Steve, you have the record. No one's appeared three times. I that's, love it. I that's, love it. That's here. solid. People are speaking. The numbers speak for them on Steve's episode. So that's that's amazing. All right. Well, um, my laptop died. So that's a good ending, right? Yep. All, All right, right. Bye. Later, guys. <laughs>